welcome to I'm With Who, where we interview inspirational women of the world. Today, we're with Monica Kapinski, founder of the women's educational health publication, The Femedic. Today, we'll be chatting to Monica about the gender pain gap. We touch on how the medical world is letting women and other marginalised groups down. We talk about how various bias appear in the doctor's office and what we can do to advocate better for ourselves. So, Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. It's such a pleasure to actually finally meet you. We were just saying um, (laughs) off mic that we got to know each other when I had just had my own experience in um, having a bad experience on hormonal contraceptive. And I was on an absolute mission to find out everything that I could about why it taken me three years of mental health issues to find out that it was the birth control. There's a lot to talk about. Doing my research about you, it seemed that you also had an experience on birth control. Was that like the catalyst for you to sort of kick off this whole thing as well? This whole journey. Yeah, um, it was. Yeah, it's super nice to meet you as well. Um, So to your listeners, like me and Izzy were internet friends um, on Insta. And now look at us on a Zoom call. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. but to to answer your question, um, did it kick it off? Yeah, so my experience was basically that... I um, So I take the combined contraceptive pill um, and I had missed a day in the pack, um, but I couldn't remember which day I'd missed. So I just realized that I was a day behind um, and it could have been maximum like five days, something like that. But there was a window basically where I'd missed one. Um, and in that week I had had sex with my partner unprotected twice. So I was like, right, this is like a risk. Um, so I went to the pharmacist and I was like, right, this is what's happened. Like, can you give me the morning after pill? Um, and they didn't, um, because they were like, but you could already be pregnant. And I was like, surely that's the point of this contraception to prevent that. Um, but at the time, at the time I wasn't like witty at all. Like at the time I just felt I'd never experienced, and I know so many people experience it, but that was my first experience being directly stonewalled and saying, saying, I'd like this. I know what I, I know what I need and this is what it is. And someone just saying no and not being able to do anything about it. Um, and of course, I was very stressed. I was like, OK, well, what am I supposed to do? Um, so I had a job at the time. So I, I went back to my office and just sat there like waiting for the clock to pass. Um, and then on my walk home, I went to a different pharmacy and lied and paid 50 quid for um whatever they had. Yeah, at that time, it was really expensive. It was like 50 quid. I think now it's less. But then it was, this is like a few years ago, maybe 2017. Um, yeah, so so that was kind of, and I was just furious. I was like, how how has this been allowed to happen? Um, and I was kind of Googling, being like, okay, like what, what risks am I facing if I can't get this pill? Um, what are my chances of getting pregnant? Like what's happening inside my body? What happens when you miss a pill? Um, and you have like sex with someone, you know, who has a good penis, like what's going to happen? Um, and I just couldn't find anything. Everything was just like, just take the pill when you remember. And I was like, that's not my problem. So that kind of, that kind of like, Fury basically spurred um, the Femedic. I, I was just sort of like, you know, I have the skill set to create something that could answer these questions. I know how to contact experts and, and do a researched article answering these questions. Um, and it's essential, like I should do it. Oh, thank you so much, Monica. So I guess the next question is to just learn a little bit more about what the Femedic actually is. Kind of how did you start it? What is it? And, and what kind of qualifies you to be able to run it? So I just saw this need for health information. And that that incident wasn't kind of like the first thing that happened. Like up until that point, I was aware there was a lack of health information and particularly aimed at women and people with vaginas. So in my job, at the, I was working at a marketing agency um, and I was leading the content team and I was on loads of health projects. And I just, 
no matter what the demographic of women was. So I was always getting the projects aimed at women, um, probably because I was like the most senior woman in the business. Um, but uh, in all those projects, there was like the same kinds of questions being asked online, the same kind of inadequacies and content that was answering. So I knew there was a kind of a need for this. And that final incident was just when all the, all the things kind of fell into place and I could see how to create a solution. Um, so I did that as just as a media platform for two years. So it was um, just about creating content um, and like kind of I ran a few events, um, like, yeah, just produce content, like build a brand. Um, and then in 2019, I realized that if I wanted to run it full time, there needed to be a business model behind it. Um, media is a very difficult place to like make money. Um, so I like I pivoted like a number of times. Like I had this this big plan with this investor that didn't work out for the best, but still it didn't work out. Um, so like I had all these like grand plans of like how to like work with brands and how to like make value. But now effectively what I do is we're a health media company um, and we but we also work with like health brands um, on their content and their content strategy. So that's the that's the commercial engine underpinning um, the consumer facing health media that we face. Um, and your second question was, what qualifies you to run it? So we work with doctors, basically. Um, so my background is all content. Like every job I have has been in and around digital content, like journalism, content strategy. At uni, I even did some like um, radio stuff. Like everything has been around the integrity of content, well-researched content. Um, so that's that's my background. So I'm very aware of, of how to do that and how to produce really comprehensive content. Um and yes, then I just tapped in the experts when I needed to. So making sure I'm working with doctors. I'm uh, regulated by two like online health, um, like, I don't know what you call them. Like They're not like official regulators, but they're like kind of schemes where you um, need to meet certain criteria to demonstrate that you are like following like quality measures. So the Patient Information Forum is the UK's only like quality marker for um, trustworthy health information. So I'm like, credited by that scheme. So I just, yeah, I put a lot of effort into making sure the content is thorough it's correct um and it's like giving good information because that's that's ultimately it that was actually going to be my next question in like how do we know that the information in your content is true and honest but you sort of answered that but I guess the more loaded question is we know that there women haven't been included in medical research for a long time and there is a huge lack of um research out there which means we sort of swayed by anecdotal information which you're always told not to do but in regards to women's health I think it's been essential part of moving um, this sort of movement forward until funding you know is filtering through at, at a faster rate and that sort of thing how do we get hold of this information and is there research out there now more than ever sure um so the first thing what you said about um anecdotes I think um in, in this field, like particularly for like women's health um, and people with vaginas, there is there is like a lack of, of, of clinical research and the institution of medicine has historically excluded us. Um, I mean, the first like female doctor was like 1860 or 1861 in the UK. Um, the, the white cis male body has been used as a universal standard for centuries. Like all this stuff is is fact that's been established and, and whatever and is available online. Um, but anecdotes are really important. I think, as you say, that's kind of one of the, the key ways we can kind of break through and share our experiences. But I think when you're listening to an anecdote, um, you should believe that person, but you should also just be aware that, that that is an anecdote and not clinical advice. So I think listen to it and absorb it, um, but seek other information before you make your own health decisions. Um, 
So that's that part of your question. And the second part of your question was about, is there more research? Yes, but it takes so long. Like it's, it's such a process, you know, you have to get, and it's also really political. So from the first instance, let's say you're, um, you have to get your, get funding and sponsorship for your study first. So you need to convince people that it's worth paying for. Um, so you need to convince them there's a market of people that are going to buy this or a group of people that will benefit from this. Um, that's difficult to do if you don't have data saying, well, this group needs this. Um, and then the people who have the funds are often like white dudes. So it's like very, you know, so it's, it's like, I was going to say, I was always going to say that. And I thought, is that too provocative to no. be like, well, the, the, the decision makers and the money givers are all people who this doesn't really make a difference for them. And they don't really care. Mostly. And it's not provocative. It's the fact it's, it's true. Like that's the, the institution has been held by those people for a long time. And now you're starting to get, because it's come from kind of the bottom up. So people are saying like, no, like I'm experiencing this too. We've got like cultural shifts um, where people are saying like, no, like I actually, um, I deserve better healthcare and I want to like, and there should be data based on, on my, on me. And like, that's why you see all this spike in like period tracking, for example, in the first wave of femtech um, and the second wave of femtech now, which is monitoring all different types of health markers. And um, this is a consumer upwards thing of being like, no, we need this. And the market's responding, which is so interesting. Um, even though like capitalism is obviously not the best thing for feminism. And um, it is interesting that that's happened. Um, so the answer of like, is there more stuff? Yes, um, but it's going to take a while. And in the meantime, um, these kind of market-led solutions are happening quicker. So even though we should be a bit sceptical of like market solutions, right, because their ultimate um, goal is like commercial, that is pushing it a bit forward, in my view, at least. So, I mean, Isis mentioned it, and I think you've mentioned it as well already in this chat, but we, we talk a lot about the gender pain gap. Yep. Um, I've heard of the gender pay gap. I've even heard of the gender pensions gap. I haven't ah, yep. heard as much about the gender pain gap. So can you take us through a little bit about what that actually is and what that means for our listeners? Sure. Um, so the gender pain gap, not to be confused with the gender pay gap, although both bad, um, is effectively... Um, where there's a care discrepancy based on gender. So it's like effectively a social form of discrimination based on gender, but within the institution of medicine. Um, so we can see that manifest in statistics like um, women are more likely to wait longer for emergency treatments, um, women are more likely to be prescribed um, sedatives rather than painkillers, um, like statistics like that that are based on assumptions that have been created in the past and accepted as fact and kind of moved through um, the medical the medical institution like, over time. So we're hysterical women just making a fuss. Yeah, but I mean, that, that, that myth, we've still got the handover from it today, you know? Like, there's so many women, I'm sure, that's been on your show as well that have said, um, you know, I, I came with this problem and I was told it was all in my head, I was told to calm down, I was told I was imagining it. Like, that's, the seeds of that is, started with this hysterical woman um, thing, which was accepted as a disease in the 19th century. Um you can, you can Google all kinds of depressing quotes about medics from that time saying things like, oh, women are just, you know, like emotional creatures, like worse things than that, but along those lines. I think one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen is you can find kind of the, um, the transcripts for why they would take women into hospitals in the Victorian era and why they would take them into mental institutions. And oh my goodness, I mean, the vast majority of them are there because they're having a period. I mean, that, that literally, when you strip it all away, that's what's actually happening there. And the idea that women have been have been punished not just for having medical issues that aren't really necessarily understood by 
the medical profession, but also punished for trying to express those and trying to seek help and support. I think that to me is, is what we're talking about here, isn't it? Is that sort of um, misunderstanding of what women are facing. And then also when they do try and communicate it to their doctors or medical professionals, that they're then kind of discriminated against again and seen as hysterical, seen as attention seeking. Um, so I think, thank you. That's really, really helpful to really clarify that for me as to what that means. And uh, But it's interesting hear, hearing you talk about that because I feel like this idea that we're hysterical and overreact is still sits within a lot of us um, in the way that we feel about ourselves as well. For sure. I think like conditioning also makes plays a huge role in it, right? Because when you're socialised a certain way um, and if you're socialised into a gender role where you're rewarded for being um, uh, like friendly to people, where you're rewarded for being a people pleaser, and that that is just a really unfortunate consequence of the way that, yeah, the female gender role, we're socialised into it um, within this society. I think one of the things that I'm really interested to sort of look at, and we've touched again on this, the fact that a lot of the research historically has been very male-centric, um, has used the male body as the norm, uh, and the female body as the variant on that. And also, obviously, you know, and I, I think it's fair to say that there is systemic misogyny um, yep. across a number of areas of our lives, whether that's culture, medicine, Etc. Etc. So we know that these are all problems. We know that they are intrinsic to to our journey as women, and particularly when we're trying to seek help and support from the structures that are, are in place to help us. And um, you know, so obviously, can you sort of take me through some of those those outcomes? Because we've got on one hand, we've got sort of endemic misogyny. Yeah. We've got this this issue with male centric research. How does that sort of feed into when a woman goes to the doctor or a person with a vagina goes to a doctor? How is how are they met? How does that in, influence the way that a doctor deals with them? Yeah. So that's that's a that's a big question. I mean, loads of ways. I mean, you have these. If you think about how um, like doctors are people that socialize into gender roles, same as everybody else, right? So there's no reason why they wouldn't hold those same stereotypes, those same expectations of how men and women, people of different genders, would behave. But it also feeds into expectations around different races, um, different identities. So you know, you, you carry you're socialized into society's biases, right? So there's no reason why they wouldn't hold those in the first instance. Um, in the second, when they go through medical school, um, what are they taught? So do they get textbooks that just have that are just based on statistics from white cis men, most likely? Um, are they? Do they get a lecture? Do they learn about endometriosis? Do they learn about hormonal differences? Like, did they learn about how that stuff happens? Um, so that's a broader thing, like how they're being educated at medical school. And I think now probably will change a little bit because this is such a big discussion in society. But um, if we're talking about now, like if any of us walked into a doctor's office tomorrow, they probably were educated maybe 10, 20 years ago. Um, so, and then, and then, Another part of that is that if we don't have um, kind of maybe like robust enough treatment pathways or robust enough understanding of what particular conditions look like, there's only so much treatment they can give you, even if they want to. So like with endometriosis, there's no known cure. Oh, PCOS is actually a, a better example for what I'm talking about. So um, with PCOS, there's no known cure. So you just treat the symptoms. Um, so they might say, if you're presenting, if you have PCOS and you're presenting, say, with weight gain, they might say, OK, well, I'll, you can just go on a diet. Um, and they might, they might say that, and that could be harmful to you, right? Because it doesn't affect, like, look at the core problem that you're experiencing. Just for um, listeners who don't, might not know what PCOS is, can you just explain what polycystic ovary syndrome is? 
Yeah, sure. So PCOS stands for polycystic ovary syndrome, and it is a condition basically where um, it's to do with ovarian function. So there's three um, symptoms that, um, according to, I think it's called the Rotterdam criteria, that you exhibit when you have PCOS, and you need to, I think, match two of them um, to be diagnosed with it. And those are irregular periods, um, irregular hair growth. And by irregular, it means hair that would grow, that wouldn't otherwise grow there. So often you'd see um, maybe cisgender women with who have like some facial hair. Um, oh, we've talked about our chin hair a lot on this podcast, haven't we, Kat? <laughs> I'm stroking my beard as we, my mini beard as we go. It's luxurious at the moment, don't worry. Yeah, facial, facial hair is like, yeah, it's fine. It's normal, but like it's, it's called, it's called hirsutism. So it's like excessive, it's classified as like excessive hair growth. Um, and the third is polycystic ovaries. So that's where um, your ovaries might have fluid-filled sacs um, surrounding the eggs. Um, so they're not actually cysts, despite the name. Um, but, yeah, th- those can affect ovarian function. Yep. Thank you. Um, it's quite interesting to kind of hear you throw the word normal in there um, because I think that's one of the hardest things that um, women find is knowing what normal is. And I think our idea of what normal is is completely warped. A lot of our members have talked about not being listened to, not being believed, feeling like they're not understood when they're in the doctor's office. Tell us um, how this unconscious bias in medical treatment is an issue. For example, with women with endometriosis, they have an average of eight years to be diagnosed at the moment. Um, and we see the same in autism, in the autism spectrum, in the fact that it shows up in them differently. And because women haven't been part of research, we don't know this. And so women are going through to adulthood before they're being diagnosed. Um, it's making me really frustrated just talking about it. Yeah, it is really frustrating. Um, endo, endos are particularly, I mean, they're all, all the statistics are all depressing. You know, it's, it's a um, a horrible game to play, like which is the most depressing statistic. They're all terrible. Um, but with endo, the eight-year average diagnosis is like especially shocking. Um, and so the re- you're asking me how to, how a medical bias is kind of affecting that, right? Like how how they affected that outcome. Um, so like a number of ways. So I think with with peacock with sorry endo, um, there is such a lack of um, like research and kind of understanding of it. Um, that the two kind of two of the most like common symptoms of it are also quite general symptoms. So one is like period pain, the other is um, sorry, one is like irregular periods, and the other is pain during sex. So they're quite um, general statistics. So often a doctor will um, like not consider like endo on the first way. So the, the the lengthy diagnosis time is usually because they don't, women or people with vaginas don't get a referral. So if you present with that symptom there'll be a whole like pathway of things that the doctor will want to like check off or will think to check off. Um, beforehand, I've interviewed specialists before who have said, actually, endo is quite easy to diagnose if you know what you're looking for. Um, so it's just, it's, it's kind of like that thing of like, what, what do doctors do with these general symptoms? And because there is such stigma already around irregular periods and, and period pain, um, they can say, well, periods are just meant to hurt. Um, so that's one way that medical bias could prevent that, sort of saying it's all in your head. If you present to the doctor and say, you know, got really painful periods, what am I supposed to do? And they can just say like, well, deal with it. Um, and then if that's your doctor, you have to then kind of advocate for yourself and go around to try and get another referral. Um, and not everyone can advocate for themselves. Not everyone is able to pay for private like doctors or might not be able to find another doctor on the NHS um, to advocate for them. 
so yeah, I think on the one hand, it's like a, a lack of like research and knowledge gap in like what to do with these symptoms and how they could link towards an endodiagnosis and treatment plan. And on the other, it's those biases of saying periods are meant to be painful. That's just part of you and your body and you need to deal with it. And I think that's, that, that brings up a really, really important issue here, which is that women's health issues, physical health issues, we see over and over again, and we hear these stories over and over again, are very often, especially in the first instance, especially in the second and the third instance, are then kind of dismissed as being mental health issues. So very often a woman will go in presenting with a collection of symptoms, very often physical, but also emotional as well, because obviously, as we know, living in chronic pain does cause mental health issues. It is in itself very distressing and upsetting so a woman will go in presenting with a variety of symptoms some of which will be physical some of which may well be emotional or mental ill health and what we see over and over again is the doctor will focus in on the mental health issue and then what will usually happen there is that that woman will be sent away with a packet of antidepressants um, and, and that's kind of it it's dismissed as a mental health issue and often what happens is that that woman then goes off goes through that whole course of treatment takes those antidepressants and the problem doesn't go away so then they have to go back to the doctor and they have to continue to advocate but obviously at this point what what we also know is that women are disproportionately diagnosed with personality disorders so what you tend to get very often then is a knock-on and that woman then is dismissed disparaged and then often will find you know, a few years later that they look at their GP notes and they find out that they've they've been told that they've got a personality disorder that they didn't even know that they had. And actually, it turns out that they've been battling, for, you know, a chronic health issue like endo or PCOS for years and years. You know, it, it, I mean, that's the kind of anecdotal evidence that I'm hearing from people in the group and people in my personal life, friends and family. Would you say that that is a reflection of the reality of where we are now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I also get loads of anecdotes like that. I mean, people that we've interviewed for articles and um, articles I've edited, people that message me on social. Um, it is a reality. That's what's happening. Um, and there is there is some statistics out there about misdiagnosis, overdiagnosis. And again, this just stems back from that hysteria idea, right? Like we're just so emotional. We can't help it. Um, uh, and then that's how you would treat um how you would treat women's problems, right? Because they're all stemming from this like emotional imbalance in inverted commas. Um, so yeah, that is definitely very much the reality. And that is, that's going to be a tricky one to shift because that is a shift in culture. So until like society, until we're valuing women um, and not, you know, attaching this like emotional quality to like that gendered role of being a woman, um, it's going to be difficult to shift that thinking, unfortunately. Um, but stuff like patient advocacy and more research can help to move that dial. And I think it's helping a lot of people um, just like we need it to be a bit quicker. And I, and I guess that was kind of going to be my sort of follow up to that is that we, we know there's an issue. We recognise there's an issue. So how do we fix it? How do we as individuals, but also how do we as a society, how do we help the medical profession? How do we help women make these changes and push this forward? Sure. I think it's such a, an important question, but such a tricky one, because I think as as patients, um, you can do a certain amount of things for yourself. You can be informed. You can understand how the system works. You can advocate for yourself. You can advocate for your friends. Um, you know, you can make noise on social media. You can do all these things to kind of raise awareness of what of what you're going through. And that has we have seen that's impacted like culture. I think a fair bit. It's fair to say. Um, but ultimately. The ones who are controlling the policy, the ones who are setting the budgets, the ones who are setting the, the curriculum, they're the ones who can make la lasting change fairly, like reasonably quickly. Um, so I think keep, like keep, you know, keep speaking up and keep trying, but also not everyone can, can speak up and it shouldn't be the responsibility of the patient to fix a system that discriminates against them. Um, so 
in the UK, like this government um, doesn't appear to be bothered about the people that it governs about anything no so at the minute I don't I don't see I can't see like an immediate future where this Tory government's like oh my god of course like oh endo research obviously um poor women yeah exactly so I think it's going to really be take a huge like a bigger shift um, but in the short term, like if you if you feel like, you know, um, if you're someone who like speaks or writes about this or talks to your friends about it, it can be easy to think like, oh, you know, what I'm doing is is not making a difference. Um, it, it is like in a small way, but you as patients, there's only so much we can do. Um, it has to the people who hold the power need need to change the system. When are you running for office, Monica? <laughs> <laughs> I still have my I still have my UK vote, so, That's so you've funny. got one vote. To, I don't I don't to, think I don't think the UK is ready for this um this <laughs> this pan Australian. I think the UK is more than ready; it just doesn't know it yet. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's very kind of you to say that, but um, no, I, I think I'll stick with media for now. But. <laughs> So with that all in mind then, I guess I want the listeners to come away with some information that they can use to help themselves. So if we can't change policy right now and we can't change the system, where's the line where people can know when to believe their doctor and listen to them and when they should be asking for a second opinion or like what other things can they do? Um, to advocate for themselves you know we hear a lot about like just listen to your body but as somebody who started taking hormonal contraception at age 16 I my body wasn't my natural state I had I was all over the shop and I didn't know what a normal body felt like and we have a weird idea of what normal is anyway so how can we empower people to advocate for themselves um yeah I think it's a really Again, a really important question, but with no clear answer. So I think um, it's, it's different for everyone. So yes, on the one hand, you do know your body best, but as you've mentioned, sometimes you don't trust what you're feeling um, in your body because maybe you're on hormonal contraception or maybe you're going through something else um, where you're perceiving what's happening to you in a particular way. Um, so I think the, the best thing um, is to be kind of informed um, as, as, in as much as you can um, on what you can, what you can do. So um, if you're seeking a GP referral, um, you know, see if you can get a second opinion. Like usually you can do that um, and you can Google ways. I can send some like resources and stuff after this on how to do that. Um, for some conditions, there are charities um, who may be able to give you advice um, on like how you can kind of advocate for yourself or, or to get like advice. Um, private is not an option for everybody. It's probably an option for like the minority of people. Um, but if, if that's an option available to you and you just need an answer quickly, that could be another pathway that you take. Um, another thing is uh, when there's things like, you know, you see people like creating petitions and stuff about about things to do with like uh, causes that are relating to your health and, um, you know, sign those, like try and give them a boost. But again, in, in yourself, like the best thing, there's only so much you can do um, against this broken system. So like you rely on your support networks um recognize if you if you have like been gaslit talk to somebody else and get like a third opinion second opinion you can get a third opinion as well if you like um 
But the best thing, like, and frustratingly, is just like educating yourself on what's possible for you to do. If you were in a last resort situation um, where you tried to kind of seek care, um, it wasn't available to you, you kept getting knocked back and you needed, you needed more care, but it wasn't coming through via the public system, you could contact your MP. Um, depending on where you live, they may or may not be receptive to you, but uh, like, that's something you can also do and just be like, what am I supposed to do? Um, you know, or your council even just say like, I've tried to get this care and I, and I just can't get it. I'm your constituent. Like, what, what are you suggesting that I do? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, I feel really, um, like frustrated. I'm having to give an answer like that because it shouldn't come down to that. No, Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the reality. I mean, I think it's just because you always see, and we've even said, you know, anecdotal things are important and talk about things and stuff but you know always go back to your health professional but if you're finding that your health professional is letting you down it's almost feels like you're kind of stuck in this really helpless limbo and I really don't I hate the thought of people feeling like that because I have experienced it myself and um it's a it's a really isolating place to be and the longer that you are there the kind of worse it gets as well I feel so um but I think, yeah, I think getting that second opinion is right. And I think also just remembering that, you know, we have so much trust in doctors. I still think statistically out of everybody in society, doctors are the one person that people trust the most. And we're taught at a young age to always conform and listen to people in a position of authority. But I think it's also really important to remember that doctors are there to help you and to support you and that in the in the room when you are expressing your concerns they don't have they might have knowledge to support you but they shouldn't have authority over you in a sense yeah for sure I think like um I also just want to say like this is going to sound a bit like hashtag not all doctors but um but but, you know (laughs) it's important to say totally yeah but not all doctors like a lot of doctors do genuinely um want to help and so if your healthcare professional gives you advice I think you shouldn't you shouldn't just say, okay, well, I don't trust doctors. I'm not, I'm just going to discount that from the, from the outset. Um, but if they're saying something that's, if they've not listened to something that you've said, if um, they're suggesting a treatment or a pathway you're not comfortable with, and they're kind of pushing it despite, or you feel uncomfortable talking to them, those are all like really important red flags. Um, if they've te- done a treatment with you that's not working and they're insisting you carry on, all these like red flags um, at that point, you can ask questions. You can say, can you explain to me why you, you want to do this? You can say no. Um, if, if, you know, you, you consent to all treatment, um, you can, there are certain like minor procedures. A lot of people aren't aware that you can request anesthetic for. So if you're nervous about pain relief, like ask about anesthetic, um, as an example. So yeah, I mean, of the people that I've spoken to and interviewed who had trouble seeking care, this, their story has a happy ending when they find the right doctor, right? In almost all the cases. From a patient perspective, that's what you have to try and do, which is an impossible burden for a lot of people. I think one of the things that I, I really want to kind of dig into a little bit is that, you know, and, and it's really important that we do advise people to, to to do the research first, to find out as much information when they go to see their doctor or their GP, to go armed with as much background and much research as you can so that you can really advocate for yourself, which is a really positive thing. The other side of things is, and I say this as, you know, somebody who's got, you know, quite a few friends who are doctors and things like that, is that I see them flinch at the idea of Dr. Google, that somebody comes in with a list of, of research that they've done on the internet and almost that often seems to set a barrier between the patient and between the doctor because the doctor is thinking often 
I'm the expert. I've gone through all these years of training. You coming to me and telling me what you think you've got based on internet research isn't the way that this is done. So, you know, how, how do we find that balance? How do we communicate well with our doctors? How do we build those relationships where we can go armed with information and armed to be able to advocate for ourselves, but in a way that isn't going to kind of put their backs up? Um, and I'm asking this, Monica, because I know that obviously you deal a lot with doctors in your work. And and is this concerns that they express to you? And do they tell you how how is the best way to approach them with these ideas? and information yeah so misinformation online is a huge thing um and i think of course when people print stuff out for example and then present it um i can understand how that would feel a bit jarring from the doctor's perspective because it's it's kind of a statement of um it's kind of a vote of no confidence before you even start right um so when we say like do your own research i think be informed but um be aware that like that you know just be open to kind of a conversation as well. I think the best thing to do is to, if you have ongoing symptoms, to keep like a symptom diary. That's something that a lot of doctors find very useful, particularly if you menstruate, um, because sometimes it can be all linked up. Um, And just describing your symptoms really clearly um, and then kind of saying like, you can say, I think it's this. I'd like, I'm interested in this kind of treatment. And you can kind of, you can sort of suggest in that way and then get the conversation going. Um, Yeah, that's how, how I would approach that. One thing we've done a lot in this chat is talk about women. Um, And so I just wanted to pick your brains and talk about the difference between sex and gender because that's the sort of another area that we haven't even touched on yet. Um, Talk to us a little bit about, well, tell us, let's talk about the differences and, and how these are both affected differently and how people are affected differently depending on the issues that arise from that. Cool. Um, So traditionally, um, and still kind of clinically, the view is that sex describes the genitals that you have and the biology that you have. Um, and it's and gender describes identity. So a lot of people, this is kind of the most commonly held understanding of those two things. Um, in, in clinical research, people use sex because they're referring to, generally they use, they use sex because they're referring to genitals. But however, and this is kind of a discussion that's um, been happening and that I've kind of learned more about over the past few years. The words used to designate sex, female, male, are gendered terms. So I think a lot of people, particularly those who are um, on, on the internet, like saying mean things about trans people, um, they, 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 they conflate that. So they're like, okay, female sex, therefore that equals, your genitals equal that gender identity. Um, and so, and that can be very problematic when you're using gendered terms to refer to a biological trait. Um, and that's like a messy overlap that I think society is just kind of not really figured out yet um, in a way that like works for everybody. Because, you know, culture shapes thought. Um, so it, it has been thought like historically that your genitals are your identity, your gender identity. Um, and now we're kind of, it's become a more mainstream view. That's not the case. Um, so I would recommend... Um, so when you're like reading those words, um, try and like look at them in context to see how they're meant. Often in like, um, like again, like clinical research or stuff like from the NHS, like clinical guidance, they will say sex. And what they mean is the, the sex you're assigned at birth based on your genitals. Um, and now you can see in some forms, they do have like different, um, like where they say like, what is your gender identity? What sex were you assigned at birth? They are kind of, people are thinking about it more and more. Um, but when you're using those words, just be mindful, they are gendered terms. Um, and not like, you know, protected scientific terms like that. You're, you're making a, a call on someone's identity when you use those words. Um, 
So what I try and do is be specific. So if I'm talking about a condition, I'll say people affected by condition, people who have condition, um, people who get pregnant, people who menstruate, um, or like people with vaginas. So like most of the stuff that I cover is like around in and around vaginas. So um, I will usually just say people with vaginas because um, that's just accurate. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. I'm just wondering as well how these biases that we to- talked about in regards to gender, what additional barriers and biases are our, you know, non-binary friends experiencing in regards to their own um, health? Yeah, loads. I mean, it's a whole new like discrimination train, isn't it? Um, so again, like I can link to some stuff after this that kind of goes into that like a little more. But I think um, you have biases on and um, people not accepting that non-binary and trans identities are in inverted commas real. Um, you have people not accepting that gender is an identity and not a biologically um, fixed characteristic. Um, so you just have different discriminations based on that. Um, there's different discriminations based on people who present as gender non-conforming um, someone who perhaps like looks masculine but presents as feminine, like these these things that go against what we're socialised to understand gender is, um, can experience different types of discrimination. So there is um, a whole nother thing, um, a whole nother like set of discrimination about that. Um, because it's not, um, the, the hysterical women stuff is a very like heteronormative thing. So often like they might be left out of, of that unless they're feminine presenting, but like, you know, it's a, it's not even, there's so much more that they're dealing with. And would you say at this stage, you know, the advice that we, we spoke about before about how to advocate for yourself, that sort of, that, that goes for anybody that is going to visit the doctor that wants to be listened to really, isn't it? It Yeah, for sure. However, if you are um, trans or gender non-conforming, there are um, specific practices that do um, like present themselves as being specifically for trans and gender non-conforming people and trans and gender non-conforming people friendly. Um, so you might just have a better experience. You might feel safer. Um, and I've got a list of those um, on the website so I can send some. There's not as many as I'd like, but there's more and more coming. And I think um, I think more, lots, lots of medics do want to do the right thing. So you do hear lots of great stories about medics asking thoughtful questions about pronouns and about um, bodies. So I think like, you know, there are some positive stories coming coming from it, but um, but yeah, there are places you can go um, where you'll feel safer, hopefully. I'm going to bring us back down. Cool. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yay, that's yeah, my job. Yeah, do it. So, so obviously, we, we, you know, we've talked about some of the additional complexities around seeking medical help, you know, if you are sort of non-binary, transgender. Um, one of the other things that we do know and the research tells us is that there are additional barriers if you're, for example, a person of colour, that the idea of your um, experiences of pain, you know, lots of sort of cultural p- taboos as well. And um, can you take me a little bit through that, Monica? What, what have you seen in your experience affects people of colour when they're seeking medical care? Sure. So um, again, there's like loads of stuff written by people of colour kind of out there that um, I'll link to after this who will be able to give like firsthand experiences and more kind of critical perspectives on it. Um, but from my work in this space, you can just see it's it's similar to what we've discussed about how social beliefs about a certain group of people have filtered into clinical decisions. You also have that same thing when it comes to like racial stereotypes. So the, the idea that, um, and also particularly when we have like racial stereotypes, you have this history of... Um, I don't know the word for it, but like sort of when you when science was used to justify um, ideas of racial difference. So the idea that there was different skull shapes and things like that. Um, 
you know, this is all really problematic thinking that like filters down. Um, and because this is still a racist society, um, there are people who are not fully letting go of those beliefs because they don't have to and no one's telling them that they have to. And in fact, people are actually validating them for holding on to those beliefs. Um, so it can be very difficult. Uh, you can be told um, that you're too aggressive um, and like not be given treatment. Um, there's all kinds of statistics about, um, like, I think it's childbirth, like black women in childbirth are more likely to, to die in childbirth because the pain's not being taken seriously. It's just, it's just, it's, it's racism expressed in this medical context. I mean, that's, that's the long and, and short of it, effectively. You said before in, in this broken system, and I was like, yeah. I think the system's actually working exactly as it was designed. <laughs> exactly. No, completely, completely. And that's, that's something that um, a lot of people kind of within this space, like we speak about, you know, like the system is doing what it's built to do. So how, and that's a broader discussion within like feminism and the women's movement in general, um, because it's saying like, you know, we can try and climb the ranks of this system and achieve and, you know, and make way for ourselves within this system. But is that possible? Do we just make a new system? How is that possible? So it's like a very messy, um, complicated discussion. So I guess, you know, obviously what I really want to know is how can we help you help for medic take over the world how can <laughs> get as you. many people yeah. reading the website sharing stories learning more how can we help amazing thank you that's really kind of you to ask um i want to add one thing to our like little discussion about like activism and stuff i think on an individual level something really meaningful that you can do if you're a person who holds some degree of social privilege is to educate yourself about other groups like read books by people in those groups understand their perspective um and even down to the way like you change your language if you hear one of your friends saying something that's um, based on a stereotype, like politely calling it out and um, like in a friendly and constructive way, like that stuff makes such a difference. Um, so that's a really effective thing you can do yourself, I think is going gonna, is gonna to be huge. Um, okay, now your, your question was, how can you help me? Um, so I just like, yeah, like follow us, <laughs> follow us on Insta and um, at the Fermedic, like engage with our content, read our content. Um, I do take requests. So if there's a, a problem you're having, I can't like respond to all of them, but some people do email me saying, can you do an article on this? And if we can do it, we do it. Um, yeah, just, just, just engage with us. <laughs> that's, that's the main thing. I mean, we make our commercial model is, is working with brands. So if you are listening and you are a brand and you do want um, some really like nice health um, content strategies and really high quality content, contact me. Um, but, but, but otherwise, it's just about like awareness and engagement and, you know, um, like voice sharing. It's great. And um, what are the future aspirations of the Fomedic? What's the future look like for you? Um, so the future, I would like us to, um, be able to produce more content. So we're completely independent. I, um, it's me and freelancers, um, mostly I'm the only full-time like employee. Um, so yeah, we make money from working with brands and then we, we produce content, but I'd like us to be able to produce more content. Um, we publish roughly once a week. Um, and we try and pay fairly. So that's more important to me to do that than to just turn out a load of content. Um, so yeah, publishing more, like kind of getting a bigger reach for like our um, content, but also working with some cool brands because there is some really cool brands doing really great stuff. Um, so just kind of in a nutshell, like do good work and like further the, the mission of what we're trying to do, which is improve. Our mission is to raise the standard of digital health content. Um, that's the, that's the mission. Um, so all of the things that I'm doing are working towards that. So more content that's well-researched, that's spread far and wide, um, and then working with brands to make their content of a high standard as well. 
what, you know, who are the brands that you're working with that are that, that are doing well? Who are the kind of interesting ones to watch? Um, interesting ones to watch. So interesting ones to watch is like, a, a, I think, a different question because there's the femtech. Femtech is huge at the moment. I know that that, you know, some people like take issue with that language, which is fine because it's like, oh, you know, you can't have real tech. You have to have femtech. Um, but it is an underrepresented. Is tech. it pink? Is it all pink? That's what I want to know. Otherwise, I can't touch it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> My argument would be it's an underrepresented segment. And so it uses that label for now. Um, so I think if we're talking about ones to watch, like obviously I, I work with like some cool people, but I think that's a, that, that's where the discussion is, like who's getting funding and what technologies are being developed. So um, if, you ask, if you're asking me like what's the kind of the thing to watch for like femtech, I think it's going to be more um, robust monitoring of health markers. So um, some a company called Evie's just received, I think they've just launched in the US and they measure bacteria in the vaginal microbiome. And give like, it's amazing. And they give like um, readings about your likelihood of like developing thrush and BV. So you can have preventative care before you would develop those conditions. Um, there's this university in, um, I think it's the University of Hull. They're developing a endometriosis diagnosis test where you, you can, it's like a P test, but they look for a protein to diagnose it. Like there's all kinds of really cool stuff that's figuring out how to take biological markers and say, this is what that means. And that can either help you like prevent, um, you know, in a preventative sense or can, you know, help you get better insight into your body. So like, I think the next five to 10 years, um, we should, yeah, it should be better um, for us, whether it's going to solve how much of our problems it's going to solve is another discussion. But I think I'm, I'm very optimistic about the technologies I'm saying slight caveat this then brings issues of like data privacy but that's like a different discussion but like read the privacy statement before you download a health app is my other my last bit of advice for you <laughs> thank you so much it's been so nice to see you in action and actually get the chance to talk to you and and, yeah, and hear all your wisdom um yeah i love i love i absolutely love what you're doing thank you so much bye thank you so much monica <laughs> Thanks so much, Monica. And there's so much to think about from what we've talked about today. So it's my opinion that the gender pain gap isn't just a feminist issue. It's an issue that affects all of us, everyone. And it's something that really needs to be talked about more. But the conversation is slowly changing and gathering momentum, thanks to researchers, doctors and campaigners who refuse to let this inequality of care impact more women in the future. And thanks to people like Monica who are working tirelessly to bring these issues to light. This podcast has been recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We take inspiration from the rich history of storytelling within the cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and respect their endless resilience and strength.